Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Ozano, and I will be having conversations about how people and communities connect with research and science to co-produce solutions to global health challenges. In this week's episode, we will be hearing from two PhD students who are part of the ARISE consortium. ARISE stands for Accountability and Responsiveness in Informal Settlements for Equity, and is about promoting social change for improved health and well-being with communities and people living and working within urban informal spaces. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. We have a very special episode today. We have two PhD students joining us to talk about their journey into deciding what PhD to do, what it was like choosing methods and how their methods have put communities at the center of the work that they do. So let's meet them. Hello, Bashir. Welcome today. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I'm Basir Akhtar. I'm from Bangladesh. I work with uh, Bragg James Frank School of Public Health uh, under Bragg University in Dhaka, Bangladesh. And I'm a part-time PhD student at Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Mm-hmm. So my PhD topic is uh, on informal and formal governance networks in urban informal settlements in Bangladesh and how those networks help or facilitate or create barriers in availing health services for the residents. Before we go on and, and think about why you even chose this PhD, let's hear from Sami. Sami, welcome. How are you today? And tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, um, good morning, Kim. Um, I am Samuel Saidu, and uh, I'm from Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Um, well, initially, I'm, I was a pharmacist, and then master's in public health, and uh, now doing PhD um, at LSTM through the Arise Project. Uh, linked with the University of Sierra Leone. Excellent. And I think for our listeners, what's an interesting dynamic today that I learned is that Bashir was actually your supervisor at one point in Bangladesh. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) She taught me and also supervised my um, master's dissertation, which is called Summative Learning Project. So you're from Sierra Leone and you did your master's in Bangladesh. How did that happen? Um. I have um, a senior colleague, mm-hmm. he's also a pharmacist, uh, who actually um, had the opportunity to go to Bangladesh uh, and study the Masters of Public Health at Brack James P. Grant School of Public Health. And when he went back, um, he was recruited in an organization I was working, eHealth Africa. Then we had to discuss about progress and next steps. Then he introduced me to the website and gave me the link, and then I applied. I found it very useful at the end because um, the teaching and learning in the, the school actually made me change the rest of my ideas and career path. Why was that? What what particularly made you do your experience change your ideas? Um, I think as a pharmacist, I meet very less people. I will not meet more than 100 people physically, but um, as a public health researcher, um, I think I have the opportunity to meet probably half of the world. Since I had that feeling that I can meet more people through public health and I can change things through public health innovations, I thought moving towards that aspect can help the world more. Freetown is a tiny town of less than 2 million people and we have like 78 slums in Freetown. So people call Freetown a big slum. Mm-hmm. So 
that situation of where I am able to support the poor, marginalized, and people who really may not know what exactly they are doing makes me more interested in public health and what I'm doing now. When I actually heard that I can do a PhD and I can do a PhD linked with informal settlement, which is actually slum, mm-hmm. then I really felt that I think my dream is coming true where I can use my knowledge to actually change things. So I am really hoping that my PhD will come out to change and bring some kind of innovation, especially among the topic I have chosen, which is actually linked with young people living in slums. Wonderful. I think that's great. So just before we go any further, tell us the context of the work. So informal settlements, paint us a picture. What are they like? So the informal settlements are that uh, commonly known as slum, but we don't use the term slum. Uh, and also in my research, because the communities, it's kind of a, uh, the term itself is a kind of insulting to them. Mm-hmm. So they don't like to introduce themselves as slum dwellers. Okay. So they want uh, recognition, legal recognitions, and the use of the term of slum is kind of uh, create barriers for their development. So that's that's why they don't like it. And we also, in our, my research, I also don't use the term slum. We use okay. informal settlements. I work in two informal settlements for my PhD. So the one settlement is established in uh, government land. So it's uh, one of the oldest informal settlements in Dhaka City. Mm-hmm. So Dhaka is the capital of Bangladesh. And that informal settlement established around um, 40, 45 years back. Wow. So it's been a long time there. Mm-hmm. So it's more stable and there are many uh, service providers and many services also available. Like mm-hmm. they have a very good system of water sanitation. They have some legal lines for water sanitation, for electricity. Some part of that settlement also has legal supply for gas. And... Uh, the opposite scenario is the another settlement that I'm working with. So the, that the settlement, which is named uh, Shampur, which is kind of a new settlement, uh, it was previously not part of the city corporation. So it's also at the border of Dhaka City. Okay. So because of its geographical location and history of uh, uh, kind of it's a new settlement, so there is not many service providers and services available there. And that uh, informal settlement is also very scattered. And some part of the settlement is a kind of a floating settlement. Okay. So it's very close to the industrial area. And the industrial waste, solid and um, liquid waste, are all, all actually where, uh, goes to nearby water bodies. So the people who are very poor, very vulnerable in mm-hmm. the settlement, they actually live in those floating houses. So they have different level of vulnerabilities. So there are actually two, uh, the characteristics of the two settlements I'm working for my PhD is completely different. Yeah. So I'm trying to understand actually their, their governance system. Because for this, uh, the established one, even the government system is also established. But for the new one, there, the governance systems is very fluid, very, uh, it's not strong actually. And what I have found that they also don't have any strong network. Okay to raise their voice. So this so is two, the scenario. Two very different contexts yes. there. And I think what's really interesting is that um, we often don't think about informal settlements as being so established. So the, f- the first one that you mentioned, you know, has this history and has formal services by the sounds of it. And then you have this new one. So it'd be really interesting to, to hear about that. Governance actors. So for our listeners, can you give us some examples? Oh, sure. So uh 
governance actors are those who have uh, who made actually make decisions regarding any services that we get and sometimes they are also providing services mm-hmm. for example uh, in my case in, in the informal settlements so there are two types of governance actors one is formal which is like public like government ministry of health ministry of local government city corporations and also some um, ngos like the service providers who are providing services they are also kind of governance formal governance actors because they are involved in providing direct services to the community and the informal governance actors are the community leaders and also some uh, in community uh, influential people landlords in in the specific community and also some local political leaders and uh, there are also uh, another form of formal governance actors in informal settlement is the ward councillors so they actually have kind of dual role for both formal and informal so i yeah. think i will discuss later about different methods that i'm applying sami moving to your phd and the the kind of focus there it's around young people you mentioned earlier so tell us a bit more about that yeah my umbrella topic is um, understanding the health and well-being of young people living in informal settlement but um uh, at the same time um even though i want to understand how they actually um defined health and well-being their own health and well-being i also want them to give me um practical solutions of mm-hmm. how these problems can be reasonably solved at community level so i don't want a solution suggested by policy makers or i don't want a solution suggested by uh, the community people but through like saying we, we want the government to build this we want the, the, the uh, ngos to bring this how can you as community organize yourselves to actually bring solution that can last maybe forever and serve you well within your community how can you organize your own community and make it a better place for you to live how will you be able to tell someone that don't live here and we stop anyone from living beyond this point because it is dangerous to live mm-hmm. tell somebody that this structure should not be built within this community because this is dangerous for us our children and the generation after us so what solutions are they bringing so i am doing what i call co-production of knowledge of reasonable solutions that can make the living health and well-being of those residents especially among young people reasonable enough so um those are really my objectives and i hopefully um be able to have them um factual to policy makers and tell them these are the problems and these are the solutions we can be able to have to ensure that this is being resolved like permanently because it's a community based participatory study wonderful these both sound hugely intriguing how did you select the methods that you use what evidence are you collecting and how will you present it to make that change for me uh, i am uh, using completely participatory methods so this is also kind of pilot testing for me as well because i have never done this the way i'm doing currently participatory method i have never done before So for me uh, I am doing uh, it calls governance mapping where I try to understand the whole governance network system both formal and informal system in the settlements how those work 
what the actors, what are the facilitated factors, what are the barriers in those networks, how those two networks collaborate with each other or mm-hmm. may create barriers with each other or conflict have, uh, have conflicts with each other. So that's one method. And in that method, I uh, have uh, group discussions with uh, community people, different types of community people like persons with disabilities, like women who are single or who are the female-headed households, head of households. I also have uh, group discussions with informal workers who are living there and also with the uh, community leaders. So with the discussions with multiple types of uh, participants, I try to understand their point of view about what is accountability to them, what is governance to them, what are the networks, how they uh, are linked with that networks, what are the factors that help them to be part of that network Mm -hmm. and and their decision-making power in that network. So that is one of the methods. And another method is which calls governance diaries. So in that method, I will select some households in, in the two settlements and I will have a kind of a follow-up with them for a certain period of time. And that method is more about individual level. So I will try to understand that what are the factors that actually help them to be part of that network. And if they're part of that network, how that helped them to avail some services. Or maybe the, if there is any other uh, factors that actually create barriers for them to be to participate in that network. And if that's so, then then how that uh, impact in their daily lives, especially for their access to health services. Mm-hmm. So uh, these are the two very interesting methods. Uh, and um, yeah, I have completed one method, the governance network mapping. And I have fa- found very interesting findings and also some challenges with the application of participatory methods with this very sensitive topic. Mm. Because in our context, discussing governance issues with the community leaders and also the people in a group setting Mm-hmm. That is also kind of a challenging because there are some uh, governance issues that people actually don't want to share, but that's are very important for their access to services and availability of the services in their community. Those are the things I'm doing and I also will do, it's called organograph method. So that is also another participatory method where I will involve policymakers. So that will be kind of a discussion with them to know their perspectives, how they think about governance issues and how they actually link up with the informal se- sector uh, governance actors and also what is their planning for mm-hmm. urban health. So these are the participatory methods I will be applying in my research and in addition to that I will also do policy analysis and also interview some of the policymakers to understand their perspective and their their plan for the future urban health for Bangladesh. And uh, these are my methods, and uh, I have actually come up with these methods. I did lots of uh, search mm-hmm. to look at that what can be the best method to talk about these governance issues. And I did lots of literature review, and I found this these two methods, especially the governance diary is and governance uh, n- network mapping, these two uh, best fit for my research question. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I did pilot. Of, with the governance uh, network mapping, and that was very successful, and that actually uh, helped me to more, be more confident about the method. But when I actually applied the method uh, in the real world, real uh, <laughs> field, uh, I actually faced lots of challenges. But mm. that's also learning for me. Each method actually helped me to improve my facilitation skill, improve my method, and also my tools. So that's also a very good learning experience for me. I'm now more more mature, I should say, 
about the method and also more confident about how to talk, how to interact with different types of participants. Yeah, on this podcast, we've heard a lot about the importance of embedding yourself within the the context where you want to work. Sami, did you have the same experience of working with young people? Tell us about the methods and how you found applying them. I looked at the fact that I have to bring in maybe two methods to ensure that I am able to actually have uh, the data I will need rich enough to have my output and um, what is needed for young people living in slums. So one of my methods that I always start with is social mapping. So I try to map the communities and understand what do they have within the community. So the young people themselves will map their community and tell me what they have within the community, especially things that relate to their health and well-being. Mm-hmm. So they will map the communities and we on all of us understand what exactly they have within this community. So I get my participants, like 11 to 15 participants from one community, men and uh, 11 to 15 women or boys and girls. But we try to draw them from different sections. So Arise initially had already mapped these communities uh, geographically. So mm-hmm. we have already a GIS map of the community and these communities have been divided into subsections. So I draw them from different sections and bring them together, draw the map of their community, get everything that affects their health and well-being. Then I do Venn diagramming. So how are these issues you have done already, you have drawn from the social map, how are they linking to each other? So Mm -hmm. I want to have a Venn diagram where you link them together. So with the support of co-researchers, they help me get this Venn diagram, link these issues they have already listed on the maps, I mean social map, together. Then I will do well-being ranking. Uh, so when I was doing well-being ranking, we try to state the issues that affect their well-being and then we rank them. What do you prioritize most? Then, then, then. So we try to list them. Then we ask why. And if you say this, why is this? And why is this not coming before this? And what are the issues that are really affecting this? So we try to make sure we rank them very well. I try to also understand a bit from key informants. So key informants are people who really interact with these young people. So they can be within the community. They can also be outside the community. So within the community, like the community chiefs, community elders, People who have organizations within the community are providing service for young people within that community. And also outside the community, there are organizations, NGOs, INGOs, who work with these young people within the community. Like, for example, Kudusapa, Center of Dialogue on Human Settlement and Poverty Alleviation, which is linked with SDI. They actually provide a lot of services. They call them FEDOP in Sierra Leone, Federation of Urban and Rural Poor. So they work with these young people. So I talk to them as key informant. I talk to the Ministry of Health and Sanitation personnel who actually work with young people, wings within the ministry. I also talk to Ministry of Youth Affairs, especially the National Youth Commission, Youth Coordinator. So these are people who really I talk to. The Freetown City Council work a lot with the young people within the informal settlement, especially on garbage collection, sanitation, etc. So I also brought them in as key informants to let me understand how really this problem the youth stated affects 
um, the general health and well-being of them and other people around them within the informal settlement and how will that affect the general health or well-being of the country as a whole or Freetown. Then narrative interview is also included. Young people who are really disadvantaged, vulnerable, they are extremely sick, they are extremely poor, they are commercial sex workers, etc. So I try to try to let them narrate their own story and how are these issues really affecting their health and well-being. You know, then I did a photo voice specifically for young people between 15 and 17 years. Why was this age selected? I felt that they can express themselves more when they see things and not really when talking. So, and when uh, I train them how to take pictures, which pictures they should take, why they should not take some pictures, etc. So they took very, very nice pictures of things that affect their health and well-being. They brought them and individually we talk those pictures through mm -hmm. depending uh, based on what satisfy them to be discussed in group then i now bring them in group and project the pictures that they selected that okay yes this picture i can talk about it anywhere but this one no so the one they say no i don't discuss in group but the one they say yes i put them together and we all sit down and look at the pictures one after the other so for example you can see that you have a hanging toilet Somebody might be talking about it is not hygienic, but some other people they do not concern about hygiene. They are concerned about security. Mm -hmm. You know, some people are not concerned about both. They are concerned about falling down. Mm -hmm. So you can see that everyone has their own dynamics and interpretation of one photo, which probably all of them took, but I just had to post one of them so that we can discuss those issues. But what I have not done at all yet is the co-production. So I really want to understand the data properly mm -hmm. at this point before I bring this data to them, like bring something live. This is what you said. How can we have a solution? So that co-production will be hopefully done in two to three months from now yeah. when I shall have understood my data really very well. But these are like the methods I use to get my information, which I really want to have um, and present them to the world, to authorities, to people in Sierra Leone, actors, to see if they can really help support to change those young people's views, their health and their well-being as they live within those settlements. Excellent. So, so many methods there. And I understand it will be a triangulation process where you'll put your different uh, kind of evidence pieces together to, to create a thesis. From thesis point once you write up what do you think is next in terms of making sure that your data creates the change that you aspire to and also what's next for yourselves uh, well okay so uh, for me uh, uh, i think it's the privilege of being part of a larger research project because there are lots of um, ongoing activities in the project where you can also link your and incorporate your PhD findings so for me, uh, I have I am planning to also share some of my findings with the stakeholder meetings, which the Arise Project is planning in Bangladesh. So that my PhDs also will supplement some Arise data that we have in Bangladesh. So that is one way of uh, contribution of my PhD mm -hmm. to the project and also to the larger urban landscape in Bangladesh. From my PhD, uh, 
I will write some papers and also I'm planning to do some kind of a policy brief, produce some policy briefs, especially for the urban policymakers in our context. So that will be another uh, type of contribution of my PhD for, for the improvement of urban health in, um, in, in Bangladesh. And uh, in future, I actually want to also do some kind of implementation research where we can test some of the urban health models based on the PhD findings and also based on the findings of the RISE project. So that is my broader goal and aim. So I hope that will also actually, that will benefit it for, for our cities also, because uh, we still don't know that what will be the next urban primary healthcare for us. Mm -hmm. So uh, if we can, and if we have that funding uh, support from the donor agencies, that will be really important for us to also test out multiple models to look at that what actually work. And not only just testing the models, but also the solutions which actually the community produce. Because from my research, I have found that there are some local level solutions they are implementing in their daily lives for accessing services. So maybe we can uh, institutionalize those uh, solutions to think about more broader solutions for the urban poor in my Bangladesh context. So that is my future goal to at least try and test out some of the models which work for them mm -hmm. and, produ and, and uh, pr produce evidence for the government to think more about the different approaches for providing services. And uh, yeah, and I also would like to do my postdoc on urban health system and, and especially the policy and governance. So that is my plan for the next coming years. So for you, the PhD is almost the start of a journey and your passion. This is the beginning of collecting evidence, but it's not the end. It's, you know, it will get you your PhD, but it's start of a longer journey um, in this field, which is really interesting. And, and it's great that you want the models that you uh, kind of find through your PhD to be tested and piloted and, and to see if that can make change. So that's great. Sammy, same question to you. Um, what do you think will happen to your PhD data, how will it benefit communities, and what will be next for you? Um, it, it's almost similar, uh, but I believe in action mm -hmm. rather than research. I believe in research, but I believe in action more. <laughs> uh, what I mean by that is um, um, when I was in my study site collecting data, I had a lot of voices, comments, concerns about you guys only come and interview us and go away. We don't see anything. We don't do anything. So it means the participants are getting tired of being talked to, being asked questions all the time. But if you make some actions, then they will feel better. Um, what I mean by that is... Um, my goal is really not to end at just publication, which I plan to do, um, or making my research findings known, which of course there's a platform in Sierra Leone called City Learning Platform, mm -hmm. where you can share this information and uh, maybe orally or in any form. Um, I also plan to maybe give data, I mean, in any form that they like to the co-researchers. Cool so that they can be able to like make requests on their own and also tell people no 
we have already this. We don't want it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so I also want to empower my co-researchers, maybe with that kind of information, not very much, but some basic information. But my aim really is to ensure that I have an action on the, my co-production. Mm-hmm. So if the young people are able to maybe provide solutions that are reasonable enough, practical to be implemented, I want to have a grant that can really support that. So I prefer writing grants, supporting these young people and moving them from one step to another rather than continuing to collect data and publish. So um, based on that, I already submitted a proposal to um, I, I just completed Mandela Washington Fellowship in the U.S., uh, which is a 10-week fellowship uh, with six weeks in university. I did four weeks internship with the Tax Force for Global Health. So at the end of your um, fellowship, you have to submit a proposal of something that you are really interested in and want to do and want to change in your home country. So I submitted a proposal against the end of my PhD so that I will have some grant to help start training some young people based on any solution that we have in my co-production, which I don't have yet, and that is fine. So that is really what I am aiming at. I will want to teach, I will want to continue to do research, but I will also want to see how that change can be made. Um, among young people living in these um, slum settlements. Otherwise, um, for us in Africa, more than 50% of our population is young. Mm -hmm. And for Sierra Leone, more than 60% of our population is below 35. So if we are not able to take care of them, and by 2030, according to UN, half of the urban population will be living in slums in low and middle income countries. So Sierra Leone is low income, not even middle income. So we might have more than half of the population living in slum. And these are mostly young people. So it means we are losing the generation from time to time. Mm-hmm. So if I am able to support them, then uplift them from that low poverty level among very poor people, then I think I will be happy that um, I am making some change in my community. Thank you very much. It's again, the passion comes through from both of you, how this is not just a PhD at all. It really is instigated and situated within your heart to, to make change long term. And I can see that the selection of your PhDs has been um, really very particular to your interests and your passion as well. I think that's important when you're deciding your PhD. I know I felt the same that it's you live with your PhD for so many years, you have to love it and feel passionate or it's difficult. So just as a, a final comment, what piece of advice would you give to others that are just starting their PhD planning process? Uh, Sammy, let's start with you. You don't need to see it as like an achievement only, but you have to really like it. Mm-hmm. You have to be passionate about it. Because um, like ours is even more lonely than maybe being on campus. We are doing off-site PhD. And uh, doing off-site PhD, you talk to your supervisors online all mm-hmm. the time. This is my first time or our first time meeting our supervisors face-to-face. We have been talking to them online. We don't know them. Mm-hmm. We have not met them before. And uh, 
they are expecting that um, you are not taking any lecture, like you don't have any traditional teaching where you will say, okay, I want to do qualitative research. This is what exactly um, you should do as a qualitative researcher. So like when I was doing my master's, you are taught first in class, then you are sent to the field to mm. implement what you have been taught. But for this PhD, no. The expectation is that you should do it. So if you don't really like it, then you will definitely be in a very big trouble. Thank you for that. Um, so Bashir, one piece of advice. Oh, okay. So uh, for me, like Sammy already told, so uh, I'm a part-time PhD student and off-site. So for me, uh, if anyone wants to do a part-time uh, off-site PhD, so my piece of advice for that person or that upcoming students will be that it's very important to know the balance between the study and the work because the part-time PhD students usually do work in addition to their PhD or do PhD in addition to their work, I should say this way, <laughs> actually, because that is the thing which happened. So it's very important to also have that discussion with uh, work that this is the time you need to focus more on your PhD. So this is what I have learned over the last uh, two and a half years of my PhD journey, that uh, it's very important to have dedicated time, mm. for, for especially for the offsite PhD students. And another piece of advice I should say that it's also very important to know myself, okay. what I can do, what is my passion, because it's kind of investment. Yeah. So if I'm not very clear about that, what I want to do with my PhD, it's very difficult to actually continue the PhD. So this is very important to, at the beginning, even also before the beginning to know that what I really want. Well, wonderful pieces of advice there. And uh, it's great that you're here in Liverpool for these few weeks where you do have some company. So I hope that goes really well. Thank you for joining the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. It's been wonderful to have our first recording live in a studio. So thank you once again and good luck moving forward. We will look out for your publications and your change that you're clearly going to make in the world moving forward. 